Hello and welcome to the Lessons from Lab and Life podcast, brought to you by New England Biolabs. I'm your host, Lydia Morrison, and I hope that our podcast offers you some new perspective. A few months ago, I received an email from University College London's iGEM team, asking if we might be interested in working with the team to produce a podcast. So today, I'll be turning over the reins to Rupali Debas as she interviews her professors and peers from UCL about perceptions and misconceptions surrounding the field of synthetic biology. Hi, Rupali. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, Lydia. Thank you for inviting me. So I was wondering if you could tell me what inspired you to participate in the iGEM competition. Well, so as an undergraduate at UCL, um, we're really at the hub of interdisciplinary research here. So I've been uh, motivated by the sort of interdisciplinary research that goes around UCL for a long time now. And it's really been my passion for a long time to be a part of that. Uh, So I heard about the iGEM competition um, in the beginning of my second year at UCL and uh, I decided to apply for it, and I got through, so that was great. Congratulations. Can you tell us about your project? Yeah, sure. So uh, I think first I'm going to start by introducing what iGEM is. Uh, So iGEM basically stands for International Genetically Engineered Machine, and it's an international synthetic biology competition in which undergraduate teams from around the world work over the summer on a project to address a real-world issue. Uh, Then we present our research at the Giant Jamboree in Boston in November. So our tickets are booked for that, obviously. Uh, So this year, our team is working to develop encapsulants, which are basically bacterial, proteinaceous nanocompartments. You can think of them as like protein cages. Uh, So we're using them uh, to develop a modular, targeted drug delivery platform, and we're targeting breast cancer this year. Uh, We also intend to genetically fuse uh, targeting peptides to the surface of the encapsulants and load the encapsulants with a cytotoxic protein cargo molecule capable of killing the cancer cells that they bind to. So that's basically our project. Um, Apart from all the lab work that we're doing, uh, the super sciencey stuff, uh, we're also encouraged to uh, do some public engagement, to do some outreach, to engage with stakeholders of our technology. So for us, that's basically breast cancer patients. We've also been talking to the general public, trying to find out what their opinion of synthetic biology is and how we can change that. Um, and yeah, so it's it's been pretty fun. <laughs> that sounds great. What made you want to be a part of the NEB podcast? Well, I have been listening to NAB podcast for a long time. Oh, thank you. Uh, so I approached you guys hoping that you would be interested in iDrum as much as I am. And I know that uh, you guys have done synthetic biology podcasts before, so I was hoping that you'd be interested, and you were, which was great. Um, and also, we borrow a lot of equipment from NAB. So it kind of it kind of makes sense for us to approach you guys, uh, just because I thought it might be a nice way to get the word out about iGEM and what an amazing thing and an amazing opportunity it is. So yeah, that's great. We love to be able to support um, participants in the iGEM competition, and we're excited to have you. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Why do you think um, podcasts are a good way to communicate science? Well. 
Um, I actually started listening to podcasts uh, at the beginning of last year. And before that, I hadn't really heard of them. Um, and I really got into them just because they're such an easy way to learn about so many new things that are happening. And once you find the one that you really like, I mean, it's like, it, it's, I think it's wonderful because I can just listen to it on the go and I don't have to read anything. And it's, it's, it's a wonderful way of, uh, of introducing topics um, and I think it's a wonderful way of engaging the public in something that's a little, uh, that's little obscure. Like, I don't think the general public is very familiar with synthetic biology. And so any podcast that talks about that really interests me because I think it's a wonderful and interdisciplinary subject. And it combines so many different fields and a podcast is just a really quick and easy way and a hugely entertaining way of getting a lot of information in a small time. So that's why I've been listening to them and for our public engagement, part of the iGEM competition, I think it was a natural choice to do a podcast to get the word out somehow about uh, our project and about iGEM. Well, I think you're absolutely right. And I have to say, actually, that our uh, synthetic biology podcasts have been among the most popular podcasts we've produced. Um, so I think you're definitely on to something. So now we're going to turn the interview reins over to Rapali as she interviews some of her professors and colleagues at the University College London. So for the benefit of our listeners, would you care to introduce yourselves? Sure, I'll start. Um, I'm Noelle Cole. I'm a soon-to-be third-year PhD student in the UCL Biochemical Engineering Department. Um, my research focuses on cell-free protein synthesis for making personalized medicine, more specifically vaccines and gene therapy out of self-assembling particles. Cool. cool, cool, cool. My name is Stefan Frank. I'm a lecturer in synthetic biology at the Department of Chemical Engineering or GCL. Um, my uh, background is uh, going a few years back is actually more biochemistry focused. I've been working on pathway engineering to produce vitamin B12 in bacteria and then my focus shifted on to uh, self-assembling protein complexes in bacteria that can be used for various applications like um, enzyme scaffolding, um, and more recently, applying these kind of self-assembling structures uh, for EAP-like uh, particle synthesis. And uh, I'm John Ward. I'm Professor of Synthetic Biology for Bioprocessing here in the Department of uh, Biochemical Engineering. Uh, my research interests have been in uh, bacterial molecular biology for many years. I've worked uh, on uh, systems like filamentous phage. Uh, recently we've developed uh, filamentous phage for making a biological laser, uh, but also using these as uh, structural templates to build um, more complex um, elements containing enzymes on the surface. And over the last uh, 10 years or so, We've been working with um, chemistry groups here at UCL to build uh, alkaloids, plant alkaloids and their derivatives using bacterial and plant and fungal enzymes uh, 
uh, building cascades of enzymes to build quite complex alkaloids. Fascinating. So very strong biological backgrounds. Um, <laughs> uh, so from all your studies over such long years, how would you define synthetic biology? What does it mean to you? John, you're a professor of synthetic biology. <laughs> you want to take that one? So I suppose I should have a definition. Well, uh, to me, it's uh, a good definition is the engineering of biology. Uh, and that really means that if we now have the data and understanding of many of the components, the biological components uh, that um, we want to use, we can then use that data in a defined way to build new things. Uh, those new things could be uh, cells that do something uh, quite uh, novel based on um, the knowledge of the elements you're then putting together, pathways. Uh, but it can also be in vitro uh, materials, like the knowledge of how DNA assembles, and then that can be built into higher order structures and with other elements on those, like enzymes and uh, uh, fluorophores, for example. Mm -hmm. I think it's being treated, synthetic biology is being treated as the industrial revolution of this century. Um, so how much would you agree with this statement? Like how powerful do you think the science is? Could it truly determine the future, the technological future of this era in a way? I think, uh, I think it's maybe not just, as I said earlier, synthetic biology that is very powerful. It's a combination of yeah, being able to to do a lot of... So there's been a lot of technical advances um, as a result of these, just to name a few, I will name a few in a minute. Um, we are now able to do things that we probably can't quite catch up with in terms of the regulation mm -hmm. and in terms of our understanding what what uh, the characteristics are of the systems that we can make. Right. So just to name a few developments, really powerful obviously is being able to sequence DNA, now being able to uh, not just read DNA, but to write DNA quite cheaply to synthesize DNA. Right. There's many companies that have come up over the last 10 years or so, and DNA synthesis becomes so cheap now, and it's probably not very well regulated. Mm. Pretty much anyone can order some DNA from um, from a company yeah. and, and produce something and combine biological parts that have never been found in nature before. That's and true. So it is, I agree, it, we can call this a revolution. Mm. Um, and But I think there's some, obviously there's some concerns and question marks around how much do we understand what we can make and how fast can we keep pace of where this is going? Yeah. And I'm sure we'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. So you mentioned uh, something about regulations. So do you think synthetic biology as a field as it is now, do you think it's well regulated? Or do you think that there are like kind of like leaks in the system, like the Chinese scientists that we heard about? Uh, a while back. So people are kind of worried about this. So what do you think about the regulations there? Well, uh, all our work is done under a very highly regulated system in UK, Europe, um, America, uh, 
other countries are for the contained construction of genetically manipulated organisms. So, for example, in the UK, we're not allowed to do any uh, GM work that then involves uh, deliberate release to the environment uh, unless that's gone through uh, very long-winded uh, committee stages. Right. And there has been one or two plant trials of some uh, genetically modified crops here in the UK. Right. That's not happened in Europe at all uh, because of uh, stricter regulations. And in the US, uh, there are quite a lot of uh, GM crops that mm. have been grown. So that's an example of it is quite a well-regulated um, technology mm -hmm. because uh, most uh, synthetic biology that we're sort of perhaps concerned about or people are concerned about involves... Um, living organisms that have been genetically manipulated, mm. not really the uh, in vitro building of DNA structures, things mm. like that. So I think that it is well controlled, and I don't think there needs to be any new regulation just because there's a newly coined term, right. uh, and that we are uh, very uh, well controlled in this country, but it still allows uh, a lot of very uh, exciting research, mm. but it's all done in a contained laboratory or in companies that are then using those systems to make a product, and that product could then be a small molecule or a protein that's then uh, free of any GM material. Yeah, okay, that's very true. Are there any misconceptions that you had when you entered the field related to synthetic biology? Like, what's, what's the biggest misconception, I think, that you found out recently? I learned recently that I am a synthetic biologist. <laughs> <laughs> My biggest misconception was that synthetic biology had to involve um, doing cloning and editing DNA yeah. and doing like restriction digests and things. Yeah, and I don't exactly. do that as part of my work at all. Um, but I work with a system that is biologic in nature and is very much a non-natural system. Right. And so in that regard, I'm a synthetic biologist, even though I don't edit DNA. My name is Dr. Kasim Rafiq. Uh, I'm an associate professor uh, in the Department of Biochemical Engineering with a specific focus on cell and gene therapy and advanced therapy bioprocessing. Okay, great. That sounds very complicated. But uh, so I heard from Dr. Stephanie Frank that you've been working with CAR T cells. So what is it that you do right now? Like, how do you work with them? What do you do? So I think CAR T cells or gene modified cell therapies in particular have become have generated significant interest over the last two to three maybe five years or so. Um, I think it's really built on some of the pioneering work that's been done uh, over at University of Pennsylvania. Um, so the UPenn team and and others globally have really kind of driven the biological and clinical applications of, of CAR T cell therapies and other gene modified cell therapies. And what we're effectively getting to a point with these cell types is that we're showing that by taking immune cells, in this case T cells, um, and, and being able to um, engineer them in vitro um, and then reinsert them uh, or administer them back to the patient, we're seeing some huge clinical implications where we're seeing things such as uh, acute lymphoplastic leukemia, response rates being fantastic, some of the remission rates uh, for patients who have failed every other treatment course mm. uh, going into complete remission is remarkable. So I think there's a huge amount of excitement, a huge amount of optimism, 
But our specific focus here at UCL in the Department of Biochemical Engineering is that despite all of that clinical and biological potential and promise, we have to find a way to be able to manufacture right. and, and develop uh, scalable systems for the production of these cells. Mm. Because otherwise, we may end up in a situation where we're just treating a handful of patients. Whereas really what we want to be able to do is to be able to treat you know, hundreds or thousands of patients. Right. I've heard that CAR T cell therapy is very expensive. Um, so it's not very easily accessible. Do you think what you're trying to do, making it easy to manufacture at a larger scale, do you think that would make it more accessible to people or would it make it exclusively you know, marketed by pharmaceutical companies? So would it make it more expensive as well? So I think from our perspective, that's exactly our, our kind of ultimate ambition, which is to reduce the overall cost right. of, of these products and to make it a globally accessible product. Mm. Um, and so when you look at the, you know, you know we've had two recent uh, you know, notable products, one produced by Novartis, Kimraya, mm -hmm. uh, and the other produced by Kite Pharma. Uh, right. Their product is Yes Carter. So both of those products have price tags of, you know, well in excess of $300,000. Exactly. Which means that in the US, um, you know, under the healthcare insurance uh approach, reimbursement is, is, is somewhat of a challenge and right. some insurance companies may not be able to provide that for their for their patients or for their customers. And in the UK, um, you know, that surprise somewhat surprisingly, but also because the UK wants to be seen as a pioneer in this field, mm -hmm. um, the NHS uh, or NICE specifically have approved reimbursement uh, for certain applications of both of these products. Mm -hmm. That's a surprise to some extent because the UK is not normally seen to be an early adopter of novel therapeutics, right, yeah. particularly where they are expensive. Right. However, I think the UK has seen and NICE has seen the potential for these therapeutic products to have a, a major radical impact on, on, on outcomes, mm -hmm. on patient outcomes, particularly for paediatric patients. Right. Um, but also, as I mentioned, the UK, I think, is seen to be pioneering in this sector, both from a clinical perspective, from a manufacturing perspective, from a bioprocessing perspective. Mm. So going back to then your original question about uh, will this reduce the cost, we believe it will. So, so that, and that's the driving kind of research question that we're trying to address is by improving scalability, by improving the manufacture, ultimately we believe that will reduce the cost. And that's the, and so in addition to doing our manufacturing and bioprocessing research, we have complementary research um, here in the department, which focuses uh, on on things like cost of goods models. Uh, and what we're trying to do is ensure that the manufacturing changes we make or suggest or process development uh, improvements we make have an impact on, on overall uh, cost of goods. So one of the things we've demonstrated recently is that we can take CAR T cells, which are at the moment traditionally manufactured in either T flasks mm -hmm. uh, or static platforms, which are not really scalable, mm -hmm. or they're manufactured in, in wave bags. And we've shown that actually you can use stirred tank bioreactors, which have proven scalability and, and are yeah. being used to manufacture thousands of products right. um, at a whole range of scales. I mean, you, stirred tanks are used in the fermentation and brewing industry for producing thousands of litres of, of alcohol and, and different beers and so on. It's used in the pharmaceutical industry for small molecule uh, development. Right. It's used extensively in the biologics industry for the production of things like insulin and other recombinant proteins. Mm -hmm. So they have a huge production 
uh, an engineering heritage. Right. Um, and so what we want to do is to see whether we can use these systems, these proven systems, uh, for the production of cell and gene therapies. And I think we're showing we can. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a huge step. But what we need to be able to do now is start to look at how we can implement automated platforms and systems uh, to mm. improve the manufacture. And one of the other things we're starting to show is where we originally had a seven-day process mm -hmm. to reach you know, a certain number of cells, we can now achieve that same, same cell number within half the time period. So wow. by intensifying the process, by changing some of the control strategies, we can optimize and improve the performance of uh, of the process itself, which will reduce time and ultimately reduce cost. And this wouldn't reduce the effectiveness or the accuracy of the treatment, right? That's a very good question because one of the things we always have to to consider is when we make any changes to the process. Although we might get you know the same cell number, mm -hmm. does it in any way impact the quality or clinical efficacy of the right. cells? And that's one of the things we're always checking for. So. Uh, the work we we've published so far and the work we continue to do seems to just actually it doesn't, which is a great thing because it means that we can improve the process whilst retaining some of the key quality attributes of the cells. Right. Um, so one of the things we look for is certainly, you know, that from the safety perspective, you know, to make sure that there's no uh, contaminations or there's no potential safety or harmful effects of the cells, mm -hmm. but also do the st cells still have the same therapeutic efficacy. So right. in this case with CAR-T, do they still retain the ability to kill cancerous cells? Mm -hmm. And again, some of the work we've done shows that they retain the, the, the core functionality that we would expect. So it's very promising, it's still early days, mm -hmm. but we're, we're, we think we're making progress in a significant way in the right direction, and we're working with a whole range of partners to do that. All right, this is a personalized treatment, right? Sure. Yeah. And I know that the public is very uh, excited about personalized treatment. How easy is it to make a treatment personalized? Because I, I, it would take a long time, would it not, to manufacture these CAR T cells specific to each patient. So if you're looking to making this more accessible, how would you solve that problem? It's a very good question. It's one of the questions that we're currently grappling with. So, it's so at the moment both Kimraya, <coughs> excuse me, both Kimraya and Yaskata are patient-specific or personalized treatments. Mm -hmm. uh, the technical term being autologous. Right. Um, so where you take the T cells from the patient, yep. you engineer them in the lab so they now express this receptor they wouldn't normally express. Mm -hmm. Um, and then you then re-administer those same cells back to that patient and that patient alone. Yep. Um, and that, is, that presents a major manufacturing challenge. Exactly. Um, and that is one of the things that we're trying to, to, to address, which is because we feel that in this sector there's perhaps a need for both. Mm. Um, there's a need for patient-specific treatments where there is no alternative of generating a universal treatment. Yep. However, at the same time, there are many researchers and research groups and clinicians who are looking at developing an allogeneic or universal um, treatment option, whereby using novel uh, scientific breakthroughs such as CRISPR, um, such as um, ZFN and Talons, uh, you can genetically engineer and edit uh, a universal donor cell mm -hmm. so that it no longer expresses 
uh, or would cause an immune reaction um, if it went into another patient. Yep. So with that specific focus, there we see it as two different modalities. So you've got the patient-specific autologous modality, mm-hmm. and part of our goal is is trying to address some of the manufacturing logistical issues there, right. um, as well as addressing some of the manufacturing challenges associated with autologous, sorry, uh, allergenic universal donor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they have similar, but also very different challenges. Mm. So with allergenic, you're looking at, you know, one huge batch effectively, or I say huge, one large batch, mm-hmm. um, be that 10 litres, 100 litres, 1,000 litres, in, in the biologics industry, it can be up to 20,000 litres uh, batches. Um, so you have to deal with scale, but yeah. you get the economies of scale. So mm-hmm. you can really, um, by developing these universal therapies, um, you get the economies of scale. Mm-hmm. However, the advantage of patient-specific or personalised treatments mm-hmm. is that you get sometimes significantly better efficacy. Exactly. But also, you might not, in all cases, be able to genetically engineer and knock out the right genes mm. to make it a universal donor. So I think there is a need for both. And as a bioprocessing and manufacturing group mm-hmm. within this sector, what we're looking at is for both patient-specific and universal donor manufacturing modalities, mm-hmm. how do we address the core manufacturing issues associated with each? Mm. Because you're absolutely right, for patient-specific therapy, it's actually very difficult um, to manufacture cost-effectively at the moment. Yeah. Um, and when you think about any manufacturing industry, you know, if you had to manufacture a personalized iPhone mm. for every single individual that was specific to a person's hand shape, mm. specific to the person's ear or whatever it might be, uh, it would be very, very difficult for Apple to do that cost effectively. Yeah. Um, although there, are, there is some level of customization, you can perhaps choose the color, choose you know, the, the, the gigabyte storage, whatever it might be, it's not truly personalized. It's not yeah. a specific phone for a specific hand for a specific individual. Mm-hmm. So to try and then develop personalized therapies, mm-hmm. it certainly is the goal, I think, for many, because they feel that it's better, better efficacy. Yeah. But we have to look at how we can address some of the cost-effective issues. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so some, of the, some of the the expensive issues around personalized manufacturing and see how we can reduce the cost. Mm-hmm. Okay. That sounds amazing. <laughs> um, and I think what you're doing is super exciting. Um, I don't actually have any other questions. Do you have any questions for the iGEM team? No, I think, I think you're doing a great job. Um, okay. I think it's fantastic to see uh, a talented, multidisciplinary group of scientists, engineers uh, working together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's an, it's an excellent initiative. And I hope that, you know, it's, this team and, and the other teams competing in the agent competition of this year and future years and previous years go on to become those leaders of, of, of the future that develop these these therapies, these solutions to, um, in biological solutions to uh, some of the global challenges we now face. Mm-hmm. So I think the, the agent team also needs to work on finding the right audiences and like tailoring kind of the experience of synthetic biology to them. So yeah, that's what we're working on right now. Thank you. Thank you so much for letting me interview you and thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. I hope you enjoyed this guest episode of the NEB podcast. Be sure to tune in next time when I'll be joined by James Bevington, who is a graduate of the Master's in Space Studies program at the International Space University 
and is currently finishing up his PhD at the University of South Wales, where some of his experiments have been conducted on the International Space Station. So be sure to tune in and hear how science in space is more accessible than ever.